This evening, the reading is from the uh, first book of Samuel, chapter 16, verse 1, from uh, uh, verse 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I will send you to the Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shaman pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his son pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen this. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he went and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anoint him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Amen. Amen. Oh, I'm falling apart here. Thanks, Ivan. Bless you for that. Wow. So do you remember how we began to look uh, a few weeks ago now at the story of King Saul? Yeah? Hello? Yeah, that's all right then, good. We have some visitors here, but the rest of you have been here week after week. You should have remembered this. Um, you remember the circumstances. In order to fit in a lot better uh, with the other nations that were around Israel, Israel decided that really they didn't want to be led by uh, an invisible God. What they wanted was to be led by, like every other nation, 
a physical presence, a human king. And so they begged God, please, can we have a king? Somebody that we can follow, somebody that we can see, somebody that we can just put our energies behind, somebody that's just going to lead us. And enter King Saul. He comes onto the scene. He's a He's a wonderful guy for the nation of Israel because what they need, of course, isn't just some sort of ceremonial monarch. What they need is a military tactician. They need somebody who is going to be able to lead them into battle to conquer other nations. So here's Saul. He's a military tactician, a battle strategist extraordinaire. And things start off really well. Do you remember? They have some amazing victories uh, the newly appointed king wins some battles over some of Israel's enemies. And the people respond with just awe and love for him. They just think he is amazing. And they are so glad that he is king. But then we begin to see just how fickle people are. And we ask the very serious question, you know, what happens with all of us when... Maybe somebody that we really admire and uh, uh, follow, maybe somebody that we really respect and look up to, what happens when perhaps their life isn't all that it should be? What happens in our own lives maybe when things change, when circumstances start to get a little bit difficult? Well, that's exactly what happened in the nation of Israel. Things didn't continue to go very well. And certainly, we see that Israel's reaction to that is that they start to question. And indeed, Saul's reaction is very interesting. Saul's reaction, when things aren't going quite the way he envisaged, when he's not having the adulation of the people, when battles aren't going that well, when people aren't responding to him in the way that he would like, when his back is up against the wall, what does he do? He tries to take control. Rather than trusting God, waiting on God's prophet Samuel maybe to tell him what the next move is or whatever. No, Saul's reaction is to take control. Put things into his own hands. His theme song quickly became the well-established Frank Sinatra song, My Way. And we all recognize that, don't we? We recognize that in our own lives. It's very tempting when God doesn't answer our prayers in the way we would like to try and sort stuff out ourselves, to try and take over, take control. When things aren't going as perhaps we imagined or hoped or even dreamt of, we, <laughs> me, myself, and I, waiting. Because after all, I know best. I know what needs to be done. Whether it's in my life or my kids' lives, whether it's in work, it doesn't matter the context. All too often, we wade in and try and sort things out. It's the root of what's destroyed the relationship between God and humanity. The Bible terms it as sin. That's what it is at its root. It's basically when our hearts, when your heart or my heart, turns around and says, do you know what, I'll be better off doing this my own way. 
And so people want to live their lives a certain way rather than God's way. It's saying, I'm going to do this my way. And so immediately the relationship with God is severed, it's broken. That's exactly what King Saul did. Rather than wait and trust God's guidance in a particular set of circumstances, we see that Saul rushed ahead, all gung-ho and headstrong. He thought, no, no, I know, I know what to do here. I, I know exactly what needs to be done. I'll do it. And then last time, you may remember, we saw how Saul convinced himself that, again, he knew a lot better than God. And rather than obeying God's clear instructions on some stuff, again, he chose to say, no, 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 I know, I know what I'm doing here. It's all right. Leave it with me. Saul basically chose to believe that he could follow God, but continue to do things his way. Recognize that? I recognize it in my own life. Truth be told. Can we follow God and expect him to deliver on stuff if at the same time we're thinking, well, I, I know best in this situation. I know what my kids need. I know what's right in that area of work. Where does this whole obedience thing cross lines? Saul was in trouble. He was seriously in trouble. He chose to believe that he could follow God, continue to do things his way, and it backfired big time. And because of his rebellion against doing God thing, uh, things God's way, he ended up actually being stripped of his dynasty, his lineage, and his entire kingdom. You know the story well, I'm sure. And as we began to see last time, although that happened with Saul, the lovely thing that we start to see is that God wasn't finished with Israel. And no matter how bad the situation had gotten, no matter how much they'd been absorbed with this guy and put all their faith and hope and trust in him rather than in God, God hadn't severed the ties completely. He was still very, very concerned for the nation that he loved. It's a lovely picture of the way God cares about each one of us. Because we muck up, we sing the song over ourselves, my way, and yet God never casts us adrift. Christmas proves that. Christmas proves that God isn't finished with you or with me. We saw last time that God did something wonderful he sent Samuel, the prophet, to find a new king, a king that would hopefully this time do things God's way. More than anything, we know that God was looking for an individual who would give his or her heart fully to him. So you remember, Samuel goes out to find a new king. God points him in the direction of Bethlehem, which being Christmas is interesting. <laughs> and the the family that he points them to, the dad, Jesse. I don't know. How do you envision this family, Jesse's family? I don't know what you have in your mind's eye when you think of them. I think of them like the Osmonds. <laughs> they are the Osmonds of the Old Testament. White teeth, nice hair, all the things I haven't got. 
Smart-looking chaps, strapping lads, a bunch of buff-looking boys. Well, Samuel turns up, and uh, you heard what Ivan uh, read for us. He visits Jesse and his sons, begins to chat things through with them. He notices the eldest brother, Eliab. I don't know, I like to think of him, six foot five, strong as an ox. Samuel naturally thinks, <laughs> king, that's the kind of boy... Check out what God says. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. My favorite passage when I was a teenager. Because I loved to dress the way I wanted to dress. And I would quote this verse at my mother. God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance of man. There you go. Well, basically, God tells Samuel, listen, the last king was chosen because of his height, his strength, his military prowess. It's not what I'm looking for. The next king will be chosen for no other reason than his heart. So Samuel keeps scanning through the different sons. He ends up going through ten of them, trying to find a winner. This is the ultimate X factor, isn't it? And Samuel asks Jesse, is this it? It's like, you know, ten isn't enough of an option, you know? And uh, Jesse responds, well, there's still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. So the only son remaining is the one son his own father didn't think was even worth considering. It's very interesting, isn't it? He'd summoned all the other boys, but he didn't bother with this one. He didn't even make the top ten list in his own family. Is that true for you? People told you from a young age that you'll never amount to anything, that you don't matter. People compared you in your family to your sister or your brother. Oh, if only you were like them. Look how well they've done. Look at their family. Well, you're in good company. This kid, his father doesn't even bother summoning him. Well, Jesse has to admit that the only son remaining is the one he didn't think about. Jesse goes, grabs David. You can imagine it, can't you? Turn off SpongeBob SquarePants, tuck your shirt in. Put your hair tidy. Come on, somebody important you've got to meet. Come on. And so he goes. And Samuel is told, anoint him. He's our guy. That's ah, just wonderful, isn't it? I love this. I love that God is just making a wonderful statement here. He doesn't care about size or strength or age. He cares about a person's heart. Will you hear that tonight, please? I, I think this is such a powerful message for you and for me in this day and age. God is looking at your heart. Henry Varley, the British revivalist who befriended a young American by the name of D.L. Moody, asked the young Moody, the world has yet to see what God can do with a person fully surrendered to him. Well, 
Moody prayed that he might be that man. And boy, did God use him. Well, here, David gives us a wonderful example of what it can look like when we find our identity and our security in God. You may not be as handsome as I am. Okay, fellas, it's all right. You may not have a list of degrees. You may not have a wonderful background and lineage. God is not looking at any of these things. You may not wear designer clothes. It's okay. God is looking at your heart. It's a powerful thing for us to get hold of. David's identity and security was in God. That's exactly what you see when he goes and takes on Goliath. I love that bit in the story. And he runs out. Do you remember? He runs to meet Goliath. Here's a kid who is so secure in who God says he is. Even the SAS of the Israelites wanted a, didn't want a, a piece of Goliath. They were all terrified of him. David, despite his brothers telling him to go home and watch Disney programs, grabs a couple of stones from the brook, sl a slingshot, and he hits Goliath square between the eyes, doesn't he? And I love it, pure boy's own stuff. He even cuts off his head. Yes. This is a picture of what security looks like. We live in an age when issues of security are huge. Many of us struggle with our sense of self. We are ill at ease with who we are. This is a wonderful reminder to us tonight. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you can be secure in this. God hasn't made a mistake with you. He has knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows exactly what he's doing. We're going to see some wonderful promises in a moment about all of this. But here's the picture. When we believe that we are who God says we are, it changes everything. It's interesting what it does to Saul, because it sends him into an identity crisis frenzy. David's identity and security come from God, but King Saul's identity and security come from people. He loved the adulation of the crowds. And many of us are like this, let's be honest. We love it when people massage our egos. But it's dangerous. If that's where we get our ultimate security from, well, we know how fickle people are, because as soon as somebody a bit better than you or a younger version of you comes along, people's allegiances change. What if you can't perform like you have been? What if you have an illness? What if things just seem to conspire against you? Saul is having a crisis of conscience and a real identity crisis. He was known as a military all-star. People loved him because of the warrior he was. But here he is now. He couldn't tackle Goliath. Got, uh, David had gone out there and owned the situation. 
And what's even worse, you'll see from 1 Samuel 18, is that the people are going around now chanting, singing songs, things like Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. You know the tune, don't you? <laughs> if only we did. This, you know, you imagine being Saul. This is rubbing salt into the wound, isn't it? If you felt insecure with David doing all that he's doing, now the people are singing things like this. Saul wasn't a fan. Do you remember what he did? He retaliated. Remember that little bit? This is what happens. Saul hurled a spear. He thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Do you see that? Saul's going through a meltdown. He's having a major identity crisis. And the thing King Saul is known for, his military prowess, is the thing that David has taken from him. The problem with Saul is he's defined by what he does. And a lot of us identify with that. We get great satisfaction and a sense of self-worth and security from what we do. But when he loses that status in the eyes of the people, his world comes tumbling down. He loses his identity. There's a, a pop artist today known as Lecrae. Amazing guy, if you've ever come across his stuff. And he, he's got this lyric, and it says this, if you live for people's acceptance, you'll die by their rejection. How true. If you live for people's acceptance, you'll die by their rejection. Saul serves as an example of what can happen to us when our identity is found in someone or something other than God. And what does happen? Think about yourself. I, I pondered this in my study this past week. I thought about the way I respond sometimes. Because it is an area, I think, that all of us, dare I say that? All of us struggle with. We do. I know, you know, we, we get angry. You've been angry with someone? Because you're having a bit of an identity crisis? You moped around and started kicking the dog that you haven't got? Why did they do that? Why did they hang about with that person? Why does that person keep on saying these things on Facebook about me? Why didn't they invite me to the party? What have I done wrong? Why did they get a good mark? Why didn't I? You end up getting jealous. Jealous of the fact that one of your friends is becoming closer friends with, you know, your friends. Oh, gosh. We see it with young people all the time, but I'm telling you, we see it with all generations. We get paranoid. Start going through our text messages again. Start looking at the way people are around us. Maybe stalking people on social media, thinking that every move someone else makes is intended to upset you. You, you do, you can get quite paranoid by it. We can try to manipulate and control people. It's funny, isn't it? When you think about things and you, you put them on yourself, I remembered, oh, this is embarrassing, but I remember having my heart broken by a young girl dumping me. And, you know, I can remember being really insecure about this. She was older than me. She was a corker, too. Don't tell Sarah. She really was. 
And I, it just, my world just, I couldn't believe, and I can remember my friends, you know, around me. And I remember saying to one of my mates, well, you've got a choice to make, haven't you? Either, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Either you're going to be her friend or you're going to be my friend. Well, I was 15, this girl was 17. Oh, I'd arrive, man. What was I trying to do? Manipulate a friendship? But think about it. Very often, see, very often we do get angry and we do get jealous and we do get paranoid and we do try to manipulate and control people. When we're insecure, these are the ways we respond. We don't fight fair. And when our identity is found in things other than Jesus, that's the problem. We'll change and we'll become not a very nice version of ourselves. And dare I say it, everything around us will just be moving. So how do you avoid that? How, how do you avoid getting sucked into this vacuum that, that Saul had gotten himself embroiled in? How do we find stability in our identity in Jesus rather than in, in other people and what they think about us or in things and the things we can get for ourselves? As I looked at the, the passages, I, I thought about another character in the story. Not, not David, not, not Saul. You know where I'm going to go, don't you, Mary? Do you know? I'm thinking about Saul's son, Jonathan. Don't hear much about him sometimes, do we? Jonathan's an interesting fella. He's the son of the king. The eyes of everybody around him saw him as the son of the king. That's who he is. He's the next in line, isn't he? To inherit what was likely the most powerful position in the world at that time. Oh, that's, uh, that's Saul's boy. He'll be the next in line. And then you have to ask yourself, don't you? How do you think Jonathan feels as he watches David starting to get the limelight instead of his dad? His dad has the position into which he will step, and yet now there's this other guy, David. How do you think he felt when Goliath's head hit that floor? Jonathan had every reason right there to feel insecure, to experience an identity crisis of his own, to think, well, flip me. I'm the one who's going to inherit all of this. What's this guy doing? For goodness sake. What does he do? Problem is, you all know the story, isn't it? That's why it's such a great passage to show young people, because they've never heard of it. So come with me to 1 Samuel. Here we go. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. It's brilliant. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Rather than respond with anger and jealousy and paranoia or manipulation, Jonathan 
It seems here is giving up the very thing that he could be tempted to view as his identity. What does that tell us about the way this guy's self-worth was working? He's willing to give up the thing that could be viewed as his identity, his royal positioning as the son of the king. Well, where's he getting his security from? This guy serves as a brilliant example of how we can avoid putting our identity in the wrong things, and most definitely in the wrong people. What are you clinging to? Who are you clinging to? Because it gives you identity. For a younger congregation, we could talk about unhealthy relationships between children and parents at times. She's my best friend. No, she's your daughter. Sometimes relationships between siblings quite wrong. Relationships with best buddies can tell him anything. Can't talk to my wife about it. What do these things say about us? What do we cling to because they give us identity? What's that thing that if you lost, you'd feel like you'd lost everything. Is it a relationship? Is it a hobby? Is it sport? What's the thing that if you lost it, you'd feel like you lose your whole status with people? And I ask myself this. Is it about being able to stand up in front of people? Is that, what it's, is that where I get my identity from? A counsellor asked me many, many years, is that what gives you your identity? being able to stand in front of people and preach? What a nice question. We need to look at these things seriously. Our identity can be so wound up in one thing that we refuse to let go and it can poison us. Jonathan was willing to give up his thing because his identity wasn't found in it. As Christians, we have an identity not found in what our last name is, not found in what we do, not found in how much money you've got or how good you are at something. You can have money. It's not wrong to have money. It's, it's okay as a Christian to be really good at something. It's okay to come from good stock. But I'm telling you, those things can't give you the identity that you can find in Jesus. When God is king of your heart, when you believe you are who Jesus says you are, wow, everything will change. The Bible goes on about this. God goes on about it again and again because he knows this is an area where we struggle. Our self-worth, our security, our significance are hugely important to God. So he says some wonderful things in the book of Deuteronomy and through the Apostle Peter. You read 1 Peter 2 verse 9 and Deuteronomy 14 2, you will see that you are God's special treasured possession. I hope you know that tonight. Elsewhere in scripture we're told things like you've been chosen by God to be a world changer, to make a difference, 
You read John 15. That's exactly what you'll see. What else do we understand from Scripture? You are irreplaceable. You're an absolute masterpiece. You may have been told that you're rubbish and worthless. It's not the way God sees you. He's chosen you. You, yeah, with your personality, yes, and with your gifts. You are absolutely soaked in God's love. You may feel very alone. You may not be in a relationship at the moment. I'm telling you, God is crazy about you. Loves you. Loves you to bits. You are worth dying for. You see that? In what Jesus did for you and for me. You are forgiven. You are his child. Nothing can change that. You are eternally secure and no one and no thing can alter that. Look at this. You are free from sin and have the power to live a life of righteousness. You are so precious to God. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Wow. Wow. What, what are you, who are you putting your confidence in? Maybe the reason that you are at sixes and sevens with yourself, maybe the reason that you don't enjoy the peace that we're speaking of on this third Sunday in Advent is because you're looking in the wrong place. God has revealed in Jesus just what he thinks about you and me. And the lovely thing that we see again and again in Scripture is when our identity comes from God, well, our purposes are going to be for God. You think about it. Look at the people in the Bible who were the most secure in who they were as children of God. Look at church history. People who were secure in who they were as children of God, flip me, they've changed the world, you know. I mean, nobody was as secure as Jesus. Look at him. He changed the world a bit, didn't he? Paul. Paul fully believed he was a child of God through the grace of God. Became his mission to take the message of God's grace to the world. See, the more our identity is from God, the more our purposes are for God. So let me finish with this. What fires you? What motivates you? What inspires you to get up when that blinking alarm goes off in the morning? And for those of you who are retired, what motivates you to get up and have breakfast? When we look at our purpose, behind it we see our identity. And when our identity is from God, our purpose is for God. So where are you looking for your identity? In what you think people think about you? Or in what God in his word says about you? When we give God our heart... We can believe we are who he says we are. Hallelujah.
Amen.